Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another totally fabulous edition of Keep Left with uh, myself, Chris Gaffney, and with Kim Doyle. Yes, morning, everyone. So you're going to start off. Uh, John sends his apologies. He'll be away for a few weeks. Yes, I wanted to talk about Amazon, and people may have heard of Amazon. It's a online company that sells cheap books. So in some ways, it's responsible for all those parcels that people get in the mail instead of going to bookshops and all the bookshops that have Selling closed them. down. Yes, quiet. Yes, at um, you know, relatively cheap prices compared to buying them in the physical sense. Uh, but they're rat bags. Um, so I'm going to tell you about them. Uh, so the online, it's an online retail giant, and it's notorious for subjecting its distribution centre workers to gruelling conditions and Orwellian supervision, all for poverty wages. But according to the New York Times report published last Saturday, its treatment of its white-collar workers is just as atrocious. So they have workers in the distribution centres who basically have to run around um, putting... As soon as people order a particular book or item, they have to run around packaging them so they can be sold off at um, lightning speed. So the Times report declares that Amazon is conducting an experiment in how far it can push white-collar workers to get them to achieve its ever-expanding ambitions. And the article documents how Amazon uses performance ratings, data monitoring, and an annual culling of its staff to get 80-hour work weeks out of its office employees. So I'm not sure that eighty hours a eighty week. hours a week. That's, it turns out to be something like sixteen hours a day. It's incredible, mm. and they encourage uh, their workers to sacrifice their health and their family life uh, for productivity gains that enrich the company's shareholders. So, for instance, workers are expected to be on call to answer emails at all hours of the night, and if they do not immediately return an email, even if it was sent well after midnight. Uh, this can result in text messages 15 minutes later asking for an ex- explanation as to why. Oh. Whereabouts are most of these workers based? Well, they're distributed across the globe, mm. um, and I'll kind of get to that later, but they're mainly they like to concentrate these distribution centres in uh, areas of poverty and low wages <laughs> across the world. Of course, of course. So, for instance, um, well, workers are ranked in a metric system. So workers who are at the bottom of the list are put on what are called performance improvement plans, essentially a warning that they're about to be fired. So one worker, Liz Pierce, who spent um, two years managing projects at Amazon, told the Times that she would see people practically combust at the company. Another former employee... Um, said that their enduring image of working at Amazon was watching people weep um, in the office. So one employee with breast cancer was put on one of these performance improvement plans because, as Amazon explained to her, her difficulties in her personal life had interfered with her fulfilling her work goals. Another female employee was pressured to go on a business trip the day after undergoing surgery in relation to a miscarriage of twins. And her boss told her, I'm sorry, the work is still going to need to get done. From where you are in your life, trying to start a family, I don't know if this is the right place for you. So these stories dash any illusions that the relatively higher paid workforce of the tech industry is somehow exempt from capitalism's drive to ruthlessly exploit all sections of the working class. Amazon and other companies such as Google and Facebook do not make a profit in some post-industrial magical land of beanbags, flexible work hours and creative labour. 
And that's kind of been the ethos of Google and Facebook is that they're cool places to work where people just right. lounge around on beanbags. Cool, bags. 16 hours a day. It's a bit of an ask, isn't well, it? Well, exactly, yes. The, the idea is that these creative types just lounge around and play games until they come up with some amazing idea. But actually what underpins the whole model is just exploitation. Yes. And they make money in the traditional way of industrial speed-ups. And they're some of the best and most ruthless companies around. And also in the online environment, uh, there's already been more concentration in capital and companies like Google than there is in the oil industry. So workers are also increasingly being watched and surveyed using new data collecting apps, which are applications that you might have seen um, on your iPhone if you have one um, or on a tablet or some other wireless device. And they allow employees to track um, their employees' work life um, through a number of wireless devices. So Paul Hammerman, a workplace technology analyst, told The Times, people in sales are continually measured and always know where they stand. Now this is happening in the rest of the white-collar workforce. If workers are not performing well, their colleagues are encouraged to report on them using a feedback app that goes to the company's boss. Again, this is hardly a new measure. Slave owners in the South pioneered many of the techniques used in Taylorism, and now Taylorism has gone digital. So a lot of the techniques that southern slave owners would use would be they would increase the pick rate (coughs) of cotton by incentivizing if you could do it faster than other workers and you would get paid more. Mm And then as soon as someone managed to do it faster than the, the standard, would the standard be rate, the standard would be lifted. Uh, they also employed collective punishment um, and also encouraged other slaves to rat on each other. And in an article that I was reading, it was a while ago and I've forgotten the – it was a woman professor who had of economics and she found that actually that's where Taylorism came from, was from the – scientific management techniques used by southern slave owners. Right. So people talk about it as being innovative. Well, the business (laughs) groups do, but actually it's something just taken from slavery. Right, right. And these uh, techniques um, are not just obviously employed against the office workers of Amazon, but but of course have been applied to employees in Amazon's warehouses. And these workers are paid as little as $11 to $12 an hour. And like the office employees, their productivity is quantified into a point system that results in firing if you're not fast enough or if you call in sick too many times. And the working conditions in these factories alone are enough to make any young, healthy worker sick. A former worker told a local newspaper in Pennsylvania, and I quote, when the heat index exceeded 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is around 38 degrees Celsius, They'd give you voluntary time off. But if you didn't get a doctor's note saying that you couldn't work in the heat, you'd get points. I assume that's points taken off. So during the summer, Amazon would place ambulances outside the factory because paying to take care of a worker fainting every few days was cheaper than installing air conditioners in the factory. So in contrast, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, I think that's how you pronounce his name, is the 15th richest man in the world, and made $7 billion in a single day last month. Gee. So Amazon's success lies in uh, the exploitation of workers and intrusion 
uh, further intrusions into customers' private lives because they keep data on all of us whenever we check their web of course, pages, of and course. et cetera. And it has nothing to do with creativity or innovation. Its software-heavy strategy relies on the use of enterprise-wide tools, which is similar to what Walmart employs. These tools, which Amazon is beginning to market um, or help its partners sell through its web services, track and manage every aspect of the company's business, from the location of its products in the warehouse to the time it takes for warehouse workers to pick them out of their bins to the seconds spent by customers on a product's website and the number of products left unpurchased in their shopping carts. So they can even see what you decide not to do or what right, you reject. Right, right, So Guardian reporter Carol Cadwallader, who went undercover for a week at Amazon's Swansea warehouse, writes that Amazon deliberately cites its distribution centres, and this is what I was talking to you about earlier, Chris, yeah, yeah. in places of high unemployment and low economic opportunities – and that it uh, nevertheless received £8.8 million in grants from the Welsh government for bringing the warehouse there. So there's nothing new about those tricks. No, no, it's the same old crap, isn't it? Yeah, and journalist and scholar Simon Head uh, pays particular attention to the resemblance between Amazon and Walmart, and he writes, Amazon equals Walmart in the use of monitoring technologies to track minute-by-minute movements and performance of employees. Amazon's shop floor processes are an extreme variant of Taylorism that Frederick Winslow Taylor himself, nearly a century after his death, would have no trouble recognising. Quite, quite. I actually went to the Walmart in, in America. They're absolutely ginormous. And... You get there and you're looking for somebody to help you and you you have to work you have to walk like half a kilometre to get somebody to help you and then they don't speak English. It's just astounding because Amazon as well has these huge distribution centres which people don't enter, unlike Walmart, but they have mm. a very similar model. And their hostility to unionism is just incredible. Like Walmart will shut down a whole store if it starts to get unionised, they would rather cull that business than really? let the unions get any foothold. They're right. just rapidly anti-union. Well, of course they would be. Of course they would be. So it's a very dangerous – I think it's important because it's a very dangerous model for companies to be following. Well, they're dangerous for the workers. If yes. It, yes, absolutely. Well, I, I want to have a look, look at China. We had the, an official death toll from the massive explosions that devastated a substantial area – of the port of Tianjin on Thursday night. And uh, the official death toll has reached 57. It'll no doubt go much, much higher. The warehouse was operated by uh, Rihua International Logistics, a company that was started in 2011, and it was storing up to 700 tonnes of highly dangerous sodium cyanide and unspecified qualities of calcium carbide. Uh, hundreds of poor workers were sleeping barely 600 metres away in overcrowded dormitories and some 90,000 people live within a five kilometre radius of the warehouse. Now, the government in Beijing has become very nervous over the public reaction to this uh, explosion, which have demonstrated once again the consequences of unchecked capitalist development over which it's presided since the late 1970s. 
According to official reports, Ruhai International Logistics was storing deadly chemicals without the knowledge of or intervention by any authorities at all. How is that possible? Well, the claim that no one knew about the chemicals has been greeted, as you just did, with disbelief (laughs) and anger. (laughs) Uh, Tian... Tianjin's port is the 10th largest in the world and the 7th largest in China. The city itself is China's 4th largest and due to its strategic and economic importance as the transport and industrial technical hub for the capital Beijing, it's under the direct political administration of the housing ministry of the government. Thursday's explosions have sheeted home the social reality. Whether in Tianjin or in a remote village, the well-being of the Chinese working class is subordinated by the regime to the immediate requirements of transnational and national corporations and the accumulation of profit for the capitalist elite who own them. No difference to what you were talking about, yeah. same, absolutely same motivation. And we should be wary that when we talk about the Communist Party government, there's nothing remotely Communist Party about this. This is a classic capitalist society now. Since the uh, Communist Party initiated the restoration of capitalist relationships in 1979, it's used its military and police apparatus to brutally repress all opposition by workers to the ruthless exploitation and facilitate China's transformation into a centre of global low-wage manufacturing. And in many ways, international capital depends on what's happening in China. Some standard safety measures are the norm, not the exception. These figures will amaze you. In 2014, 68,061 Chinese workers, that's 68,000 workers, were killed in workplace accidents in one year. More than 185 per day and thousands more were injured. I imagine that's just the figures that the Communist Party lets... Well, that's right. That's right. It may well be much, much longer than that. In just 24 hours, a a gas explosion occurred in a coal mine in Kuizhou province, killed 13 miners. In Shanghai, Shanxi province, 64 miners and their families have been buried alive inside poorly built dormitories by a landslide triggered by a deluge of rain. According to the state media, some 1,600 people, mainly better paid professionals, die at their place of employment every day from the phenomenon known as uh, Guslowski or extreme overwork. So what's going on in China is going on in Amazon as well. The air, soil and water systems are thoroughly contaminated in most urban areas due to unchecked industrial operations and the development to the extent that it is estimated that more than 4,400 people die every day that's 1.6 million per year, from the effects of pollution. Scandals have uh, wrecked uh, food safety with contaminated milk powder sickening more than 300,000 people and killing six babies in 2008. The uh, capsize of a ferry on the Yangtze River in June killed more than 400 people. All the Communist Party's promises that the Chinese masses would ultimately benefit from rampant capitalist development over the last 36 years are in tatters, a bit like the the dribble-down effect that we're meant to to enjoy. The regime's legitimacy is already under question, rocked by a slowing economy, stock market collapse, a slump in property vices, environmental crisis, 
endemic official corruption and widening social inequality. The Communist Party's rule, along with the capitalist market itself, will be further discredited by this disaster in the last few days. The fallout from the explosions is being watched no less anxiously by transnational corporations and banks, as well as governments around the world. Any disruption to the corporate profits extracted from the Chinese masses by the development of large-scale social unrest will deepen the economic slump internationally and potentially rig panic in financial markets. For global capitalism, in other words, any effort to change the conditions in China that give rise to disasters such as these explosions would be a catastrophe. This fact underscores the historical bankruptcy of the profit system and the urgency of forming the unity of Chinese and the international working class. The Chinese workers are not our enemies. They are suffering, as just as Kim's contribution this morning showed, and as this shows, that we workers are the butt of exploitation right throughout the world. We have that in common, and we are facing the same international bastards exactly. in each case. And it actually affects all of us. The more they drive down wages overseas and third world countries, the more it affects the wages of people in the Well, we've got to compete, don't we? We've got to compete. We've got to compete with the starvation wages. Well, well, uh, let's pass on very briefly, if I can pass on to Greece. Um, Well, as you know, the uh, Syriza was elected. On uh, was elected as a protest against the austerity being enforced by uh, the European corporations, mainly led by Germany, um, and that as a result, the Syriza held a referendum, basically on the question of should they accept the terms offered by the German uh, capitalist class and the monetary fund on the Greek workers, and much to the surprise of the Syriza government, which isn't expected. The people said no by, what, 60, 61? 2% or something. 62% or Much something. higher in working class areas. Well, a- absolutely. So that was a surprise to Syriza because the Syriza government, being essentially a, a social left social democratic government rather than a Marxist government, wanted the, the Greek people to vote no so that they could in conscience then accept the more harsh terms from Germany without any shame. But, of course, the Greek people said no. And Syriza, surprised by this, still went ahead and caved into the demands of uh, the, 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 the European bourgeoisie. In a nutshell, Greece is up for sale and its workers, farmers and small business will have to be cleared out of the way. There's an eye-watering privatisation program going on. Greece is expected to hand over... $50 billion of its valuable state assets to an independent under the control of the European institutions who will then sell them off. Airports, seaports, energy systems, land and property, everything must go. But even in the narrow terms of the debate, selling off profitable, potentially profitable assets leaves a country less able to repay, repay its debts. Unsurprisingly, the most profitable assets are going under the hammer first. The port of Pires Pires looks likely to be sold to Chinese shipping company. Meanwhile, 490 square metres of Corfu beachfront have been snapped up by a US property fund. 
It has a 99 lease on the beach for the bargain price of $23 million. According to reporters, the privatisation fund is examining another 40 uninhabited islands to sell to the Europeans, as well as a massive project on Rhodes Island, which includes, of course, a golf course. Right on the street of uh, offside with the privatisation is also a very broad programme of deregulation, which declares war on farmers, workers and small businesses. Greece's many laws that actually protect small business, such as pharmacies, bakeries and bookshops from competition, are to be swept away. These reforms are so specific that the EU is writing laws on bread measurements and milk expiry dates. Incredibly, Greece is even being told to make its Sunday opening laws more liberal than Germany's. On labour, pensions are to be cut, minimum wages are to be reduced, and collective bargaining is to be severely curtailed while it has become much easier to sack staff. All this is far more extreme than many of the creditors of Greece have in their own country. In other words, they can't get away with this crap in Germany and France because the working class will object. But Greece, they can do it all. Changes to tax include a massive hike to that most regressive of taxes, the VAT. Mm, It's just going to shut a whole lot of businesses and a whole lot less jobs for, well, terribly low-paid jobs for workers. But they don't care about that. They don't care about that. Uh, To them, Greece is a ripe plum to be picked and ate it. What happens to the workers? They care not. They care not. It's it's the jackals the jackals of the door. Um, of course, some areas of reform might be a good idea in Greece. Indeed, Syriza came to power promising to make serious reforms, for example, in taxation and pensions, because the rich basically paid no tax. But what is being imposed by the lending institution isn't a series of sensible reforms, but the establishment and micromanagement of radical free market economics. In other words, no rules for capital at all. The privatisation and the deregulation bonanza opens up vast new swathes of Greek society to areas where big business has never been able to set foot before. The hope is that it will generate big profits to keep big business growing, as well as providing an extreme model of what it might be possible throughout Europe. In other words, if we can do it in Greece and create absolute prime conditions for capital to exploit, why not the rest of Europe? Although what's even more distasteful than the hypocrisy of European leaders forcing policies onto the Greek that they themselves wouldn't dare argue for in their own countries is the cynicism of those same leaders imposing policies that benefit their own country's corporations. And but the German corporations are going to do particularly well out of this. The intensity of the restructuring program currently being agreed for by Greece should dispel any notion at all that this is well-intentioned or a well-intentioned but a misguided attempt to deal with the debt crisis. It's not. It's a cynical attempt to set up a corporate paradise in the Mediterranean and must resist it at all costs. One might add, exactly the same fight as we have here with the Liberal government who would dearly love to be able to do what the Europeans are doing to Greece. Exactly, and I think Greece is is an example. Um, I actually have a a slight disagreement, not a very important one, but it might be interesting to discuss. Yes, please. Uh, Just about 
Cyprus and the um, the vote on the the referendum on the memorandum. Yeah, uh, I'm not entirely sure. I don't think that he was particularly hoping for the yes to the memorandum vote. I think that he may genuinely have wanted the no vote mm. because I think that as a reformist, he made the mistake, and a lot of the more right wing elements in Syriza made the mistake that they thought that they could negotiate with the Troika. They thought that they would be reasonable and that they would understand that economically ruining Greece is a bad idea. That's why they keep talking about saving capitalism from itself. But I think what they failed to understand was the class component of it, was that this is class on class and what they want is to completely humiliate Greece, to make an example of it so they can do exactly the same to the rest of us. I mean, yes. I know it's not incredibly important to be pondering what Cisperus, um motivations were, but it's interesting to talk about the the political ideology of reformism. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, I actually, well, I disagree with you on that because I think they wanted a no vote because they knew they were going to cave in and if they got a yes vote, it makes their betrayal absolutely blatant. And if their betrayal is absolutely blatant, as it is now, the Greek working class may move to the left and seek other genuinely revolutionary alternatives. So I think it's it's dangerous. The, the yes vote was dangerous because it gave the Greek working class some confidence. We're the majority and we've actually won this vote. Mm. And that's more to be feared. They fear their working class much more than they fear anything else. I, I agree totally. I think... It shows that the contradictions of reformist parties, because I think that they were actually trying to use the masses as a bargaining chip with the Europeans, but then because of their but no intention position, to fight. That's, oh no, no, and no. I think they completely underestimated that what the response would be from the institutions or the troika, and then they completely. We could backflipped. have told them. We could have told them. Yes. What they, I mean, you don't have to be too bright, do you, to, to think capitalists would be rapacious? Never. Well, I think it's it's really interesting because just as you were saying, it opens up a space to the left of Syriza and not just outside of Syriza in the general public and working class, mm. but actually inside Syriza, there are a whole lot of the left faction and the red network within Syriza are probably looking to break with Syriza sometime soon. And they're going to have a national conference, maybe in September. It depends how long Cyprus can delay it for. But it just shows you that actually in this environment, even to win reforms within capitalism, you actually need to be a revolutionary. Well, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I don't think they, I don't think they want to fight. Now, I'm hoping no. that the left within Saritzia is not of that social democratic mould like the leadership of Saritzia, that is, you know, that you cannot compromise with the bosses. You cannot, because it will always be on their terms. Mm. You know, our aim is to eliminate the bosses and uh, anything that gives them an extended li uh, life is inviting your oppression later on. When they've got... They will, they will do the compromises now so that later on they can smash you. Yes. So that the first, you know, at the risk of sounding Tad's militant, our first job is to smash them 
so that there's no possibility that they can come back and smash us because well, what do you think they're they doing will. now? <laughs> well, they're smashing us now because because of the betrayal of Saritzia. It's laid the Greek working class open to the jackals, and as I've shown in this morning, that the jackals are there pigging out on every state asset they can, which they're getting for almost nothing, and. The selling of them is not going to be decided by the Greek government, but by a panel of European bourgeoisie. Well, I think that has to be the lesson that the European working class take from this is that, and I think this is what people are saying in Greece, it seems common sense, there is no democracy in Europe. Well, uh, any democracy in capitalist society is what Marxists refer to as bourgeois democracy. In other words, if, if any part of the capitalist profits are going to be threatened then so-called bourgeois democracy will fade in front of you and the, the dicta- dictatorial... The technocrats. Um, the technocrats. The, the capital will come down either with a coup or authoritarian measures. You know, the democracy is only there in capitalist society so long as the capitalist property relations are not challenged. The moment they are questioned, the bourgeoisie who care more about their profits than they do democracy, will institute some form of authoritarian rule. I think it's what Antonio Gramsci said and what has been very much um, misunderstood in his theory is that, you know, he talks about rule by consent, but just below consent is a truncheon. Yes, um, quite. So. Of course, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Well, people, it's 10.29. You've been listening to Kim and I talking about things. Now's your chance to have uh, your say. On 94190155, Any topic, whether we've talked about it or not, whether you agree with us or not, we'd love to have uh, your story. And uh, we might even be, have a little station message while you get on the phone. And uh, we'll be back in one second. You're listening to Keep Left, the programme of Victorian Labour College. Whether it's hip-hop, blues, reggae, jazz, opera, roots, curry or world music you're into, 3CR's music menu is serving it up to you. You're with Music Sans Frontieres, music from around Australia and around the world. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Great Voices. You're listening to Hit Sister Hop on 3CR 855 AM. Music matters on 3CR, 12 noon every Friday. Keep these diverse tunes on the air by subscribing to 3CR. Call 94198377. The newspaper shout, a new style is born. You're listening to Keep Lefty, program of Victorian Labour College. Yes, we're waiting for. We have a bit of trouble with the, uh, the computer here. But uh, please ring up on 94190155. Well, as we've got a moment and we're waiting for you to do the right thing and talk to us <laughs> on 94190155. On uh, September the 22nd, on a Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, uh, this program will be showing three films. And uh, it's mainly to welcome a new film called Marxist Cowboys. Oh. Which, uh, <laughs> I'm Marx- excited. Uh, yeah, good, good, good. And uh, that's a 20-minute film, and we'll show a couple of other... The only drawback to the night is that I'm featured in quite a few of them. But if you can overlook that... Uh, you can put a face to a voice. If you can put a face to a voice, uh, and rather too much of that face, I would have thought. But nevertheless, you'll have a good time. Uh, there'll be an hour of films. We'll show four films, and uh, most particularly... 
our latest film, Marxist Cowboys, which is actually about the Labor College and the Labor Review and its very, very curious history about how it managed to get every major business in Australia supporting it, which no other left-wing magazine in the world can claim. I remember I went to an International World Congress and all the other groups had their magazines there, Socialist this, Socialist that. I had the Labor Review. And people would come, but the way you have uh, you have the advertising from the capitalists, why, why, why? They couldn't work out why it was that the capitalists would entertain in, on the following page was abolish capitalism articles. So it's a curious story. and that's Why what, did they? Well, we have to come to find out. You have to come to find out in this uh, slightly, I hope it's entertaining film, called Marxist Cowboys, and that'll be shown at, um, uh, Xavier, what, uh, what line? Oh. Line 7. Line seven. All right, we've got a caller, and uh, we're talking to... Good morning. Good. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.